あげましておめでとうございます1月が終わりかけてるところでやや遅いですか一応ご挨拶までえっ、ー、と Made it in Japan ポッドキャストホストのエリオットです皆さん2020年は前向きに始まりましたか心よりそう願っておりますが、えー、こちらで2020年今年が充実した1年となるようにどのように取り組んでいるのかは少し共有いたしますでまず4つの目標をしっかりと設定をし四半期ごとに振り返りと自己点検を行うことを肝に銘じましたでまた僕にとって2020年はですねあの大きなステップを迎えていく1年となるのでその意味を込めて今年の書き初めは「咲く」っていう字にしました花が咲くようにですねどうなるのかまだ、まあ、未知数、まあ、多いんですが、えー、定期的にポーキャストで皆さんに進捗を、えー、報告するようにします、えー、実は先週、えー、名古屋市のセミナーで僕が行った基調講演が2つのテレビ局に取り上げられたんですが「えーまあ、咲く」っていうことを考えると、えー、それが決して悪い兆しではないんじゃないかなというふうに思いますではもう一人2020年が去年より良い年になることを願っているのはカルロス・カルロスゴーンさんですねはいまあそれは冗談ですが、えー、皆さんご存知だと思いますが日産自動車の元会長であるゴーンさんは、えー、昨年末東京から大阪に移り関西空港よりプライベートジェットで出国しで裁判を待たずに日本の検察からまあ逃げ出したんですね。はい、でこれは日本国内にとどまらず、えー、全世界本当にグローバルな、えー、注意を浴びる事件となったわけです。でこの事件の波及は日本の社会経済のみならず、えー、政治的そしてまあ強いて言えば地政学的な意味合いも極めて大きいですね。あのゴンが逃走してからもう1ヶ月経つとはいえまだ日常的には取り上げられており、まあ、どのような決着が待っているのかもビジネス界を中心に国際社会の注目を引きつけています。でこの要素不能の展開を受け日本人のためにまず外側の視点をそして外国人のために日本国内のリアクションを伝えることができたらなと思って少し特別なエピソードを企画しましたそこでゴーンさんの事件を徹底的に分析してもらうため13ヶ月ぶりにアラスター・ゲールさんをポッドキャストにお招きしましたでご存じない方のために簡単に紹介しますがアラスタさんはウォール・ストリート・ジャーナル誌の日本編集委員であり東アジアのビジネス動向について知識豊富な方でありますまたポッドキャストの第2話と第3話のゲストでもあるのでそこで本人の経歴を詳しく紹介しているのでまた聞いてない方はぜひぜひ話が盛り上がったためポッドキャストを2つのエピソードに分けて公開することにしました今回第1部ですが
、えー、ゴンさんの事件の背景、闘争と、えー、それ以降、レバノン、レバノン、えー、で行われた記者会見を解説し、日本の検察に対する批判、のロジックにも触れておりますで第2部では日本社会における反応と今後の展開について考察しているので、えー、この輪このエピソードを聞き終わったら次もぜひお,お楽しみに待っていただけたらと思います。で最後に、えー、今回は録音がうまく進まなかったところがあったので特に頭の部分ですが、えー、少し切れたりするかもしれません。えーまあ、どうぞお許しくださいただ、えー、聞き取れるのは間違いないので、えー、全体としては問題ないと思っておりますインタビューは、えー、英語の挨拶が終わってから始まるので皆さん「Where has he gone?」パート1 with Alistair Gale どうぞお楽しみください Happy New Year everybody! Elliot here, host of Made in Japan. And my apologies for the extremely late、uh, New Year's greeting, but this is the first episode of 2020. The first half of January was completely jam packed for me, and unfortunately, I was unable to devote any time to the podcast. Anyway, I、uh, hope everyone is looking forward to an exciting 2020 for me, following my wedding last year. I think 2020 will yet again be a year of significant change. There is quite a bit that remains to be seen, so I don't want to make any promises yet, but I will try to report back here from time to time on how things are going.、Uh, last week, I gave the keynote speech at a seminar that was sponsored by Nagoya City and Aichi Prefecture, and this was actually、uh, reported on by two te- television stations here in Japan. So I think that's a good sign of potential things to come for 2020. Anyway, another person who hopes 2020 is an improvement on last year. Is Mr. Carlos Ghosn the topic of today's podcast? I don't want to give too much away,、uh, as we do discuss it in detail in the podcast, but for those who are totally un- uninformed on the incident,、uh, Carlos Ghosn is the former chairman of Nissan, the Japanese automotive manufacturer, who was arrested for financial misconduct in late 2018 in Japan. Now, Ghosn was being held in Tokyo. In detention for an extended period of time and then house arrest until he subsequently escaped fleeing Japan for Lebanon in late December last year. Needless to say, this has become an international incident, receiving major attention from the media and press around the world. Within that, the Japanese criminal justice system、uh, specifically has come under scrutiny,、uh, adding another layer of complexity to what, to what has already become an intractable, intractable problem for Japan. My goal for this episode, and a subsequent episode as well, as I've decided to divide it into two parts, is to flesh out some of the details of the incident, mainly for an English speaking audience. While there has been significant media coverage、uh, in the Western world, not much of it has captured the Japanese side of the story,、um, their reaction、uh, to this highly improbable turn of events. So I hope to break down as much as I can the details and provide as much nuance and context as possible. To help me do so, I invited Mr. Alistair Gale from the Wall Street Journal back to the podcast. For those who remember, 
Alistair was one of the very first guests on the podcast back in late 2018, and he very much has his finger on the pulse when it comes to business in East Asia. Alistair goes through the incident with me in granular detail, providing quite a bit of insight that was actually new for me as well. And this episode, part one, deals mainly with the background of Gon's arrest, the details surrounding his escape and the subsequent press conference he held in Lebanon, as well as the critiques voiced against the criminal justice system here in Japan. Part two, uh, which focuses on the state of things here in Japan domestically, should be up sometime uh, by the weekend or sometime early next week. So, without further ado, please enjoy Where Has He Gone? Part 1 with Alistair Gale. All right, Alistair, it's great to see you again. It's been about 14 months since our last meeting. How was 2019 for you? 2019 was a fairly big year for me. I bought a house uh, in Tokyo, which I actually didn't intend to do, but uh, Mm. I was looking to move and the options were not great in the rental market. Um, And, you know, my intention is to be here for a foreseeable future. So we we found a good place and we just decided to sort of make jump. So I'm now um, saddled in debt. Um, <laughs> but I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, and we're very yeah. happy with the place. So yeah, that, that was the sort of big, uh, event for me personally in 2019. Yeah. It's, it's huge. And how did you uh, spend the holidays? Holidays. I was back in the UK, mm. um, traveled around, saw my family who live in different parts of the country. My sister, younger sister lives in Northern Scotland. Yeah. Um, my brother lives in Birmingham in central England. My elder sister lives uh, near London. So Mm-hmm. Kind of zipping around, seeing the family, doing you know Christmas things, eating, drinking too much. Yeah, um, likewise. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, but you know, I usually go back, try to go back once every two years, so it was a nice catch up. Yeah, uh, my brother has two young children, so uh, one of whom it was the first time I'd actually seen him. So that oh, was, really? That was great. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. Uh, okay, so the reason I actually uh, invited you to the podcast today is not to talk about Brexit. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) We'll get your opinion on that at another time. Um, Let's talk about something that has really sort of exploded here in Japan and internationally as well. And that is the uh, escape of current fugitive, Mr. Carlos Ghosn. And the last time you were on the podcast was in December of 2018. So this was, you know, back when this story was just starting. It was a month after he was originally arrested. So I've had a a few, I've had a few requests from listeners to sort of break this down, uh, make it as digestible as possible for an English-speaking audience, and uh, sort of synthesize both his take on the matter and also what's going on here in Japan, because that's something that a foreign audience can't really get insight on. So you are our resident expert on <laughs> this topic. So, okay. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, let's start with the man himself. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I mean, first thing to say is this is just an amazing drama, um, which no one expected. I guess when we first talked about this 
in late 2018, we were just seeing the beginning of this. Mm. Uh, and even that was dramatic because what, essentially what happened was um, Carlos Ghosn was arrested on the tarmac at Hanada Airport. Right, right. Um, the Japanese press, or uh, the Asahi Shimbun to be specific, were there mm. to record the moment. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a guy who is one of the best-known auto executives in the world. Right. Um, very well known in Japan because mm. he was um, basically the man who turned around Nissan. Right. And you know when Nissan was in dire straits about you know almost twenty years ago, he he stepped in um, and you know took some fairly drastic action um, and turned it into a uh, profitable car company. And it's right. now you know um, um, it's going through some some new problems right now, but it's you know it has become one of uh, Japan's strongest companies again. Mm. So um, his claim is that he was uh, essentially framed by people in Nissan who mm. turned against him. And those people turned against him, according to Carlos Ghosn, because they were worried that he was pushing a merger of Nissan and Renault, mm. uh, sister companies. Um, and you know, as Nissan grew stronger, as Carlos Ghosn came in and um, turned it around, it became stronger than Renault. Right. Uh, and uh, the people inside Nissan were worried that by essentially, you know, having a closer relationship, probably a merger between Nissan and Renault, that would saddle Nissan mm. with a weaker partner. And the cultures of the two companies are, are quite different. Sure. Um, and the you know the sort of pride within Nissan is quite strong of its own identity. Mm. So mm. his claim is that people within Nissan thought that the way to get the way to stop this merger was to get Carlos Ghosn essentially um, you know imprisoned or right. out of the company. Okay. Um, so they, he says that uh, they worked with the prosecutors mm. um, and they um, you know set him up. Um, by providing information to the prosecutors, which he says doesn't show any wrongdoing whatsoever. But the prosecutors uh, in Nissan say that it shows that he is, um, you know, he was guilty of um, a series of financial um, uh, crimes. Right. The biggest of which is that he uh, didn't disclose income that he would receive after he left the company. Mm. And therefore, he was trying to avoid taxes. Right. And he says that's not the case. This is income that was not um, fixed, uh, mm. and there was no need to record this in financial statements. Right. right. Um, the other, the other claims against him are essentially all, you know, that he enriched himself, you know, by using the company's money. Mm. Um, so the prosecutors say that uh, there's a very strong case that he was doing this. Yeah. Uh, they charged him. Um, and, you know, his claim is that this is all cooked up. There was nothing wrong. People inside Nissan knew that this was going on. Um, and essentially, this was just a big plot to get rid of him. Right. Um, and that was where this, you know, all began. Yeah. Uh, a, lot has, a lot has happened since then. Yeah, yeah. There's no doubt about that. Uh, so he was held in detention here in Tokyo. And then something happened last month. December 2019. Right. Yeah, that no one saw coming. Uh, no one, you know, probably not even Hollywood, Hollywood directors were predicting something like this. Right. So why don't you break down sort of the escape of Carlos Ghosn 
yes. and where things currently stand. Sure. So, um, you know, we know that Carlos Ghosn was very unhappy with the way that he was being treated in detention. Um, he claims that uh, uh, essentially that he would not get a fair trial in Japan. Mm. And another concern was that the whole legal process was dragging on and he didn't know when he was going to um, even get to a trial. Right. Um, you know, there are, um, you know, there were sort of rumors floating around that it might take several years, mm. might take up to five years before he could even have a trial. Right. Um, and what appears to have happened is at some point late last year, um, he took a decision that he wasn't going to wait for that to happen. Right. Uh, and he wasn't going to, wasn't going to, allow himself to be uh, tried in a Japanese court, mm. which he claims would not um, be a, be fair to him. Right. So uh, he made a decision to leave, and he enlisted, as far as we know, uh, the help of um, a man who has been involved in freeing hostages before, mm. uh, a former um, you know, US Special Forces called Michael Taylor. Mm. Uh, and Michael Taylor was part of a, a group of people who put together this amazing um, escape for, for Carlos Ghosn. began on the morning of December 29th last mm. year. This is going into the, you know, the New Year holiday period in Japan. So right. there's less kind of oversight. Um, there's less kind of, you know, government people, maybe law enforcement is maybe a little bit more lax at that sure, time of year. Sure. Perhaps they figured immigration might be less kind mm. of aggressive. Um, time to strike, yeah? Right, time mm. to strike. You know, use use that time when everyone's kind of thinking of uh, just being with their family and, uh, you know, um, taking time off rather than uh, stopping a... Um, <laughs> Potential know, a international fugitive. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, he, he had this amazing day where he uh, took a Shinkansen down to, to Osaka, took a mm. cab to this hotel uh, near Kansai Airport, mm. and then at some point um, got into a um, a big black uh, case, which is used for transporting, usually for transporting musical equipment, mm. but is large enough for someone to get inside. Uh, he was um, wheeled through the uh, VIP section of Kansai uh, Airport departures. Mm. Um, his uh, the guys who were traveling with him, you know, they went through immigration and brought, and they were stamped out of the country. Yeah. Um, there were two people um, that we know um, who were registered for that flight, one of whom was Michael Taylor. Um, mm. And then the box was not scanned before it was put on the flight. And mm. we know that they, the plan was to use Kansai Airport because they were confident that there would not be a check of this box with Carlos going inside it. And that proved to be the case. Is that does that have something to do with the facilities, or just because Kansai people are, <laughs> you know, a little more laid back in their approach to that? <laughs> um, well, we know that they they'd actually um, looked at a, a, at least ten Japanese airports to find one where really uh, they thought it was the best chance of of pulling off this this plan. You know, and the key thing was that this box would not go through any kind of check. Mm. They knew that in Kansai Airport, the scanner that's used to, you know, x-ray basically things like suitcases, hand luggage, whatever, right, right. was not big enough for a box like this to go mm. through it. Um, so, you know, it could have been the case that someone might have, 
you know, opened the box and looked inside it, but they took a gamble that that wouldn't happen. Right, right. Um, and they were right. You know, there was, <laughs> there, was no, there was no scan of this box and there was no one there. We understand that there was actually no one there to, you know, to really do any checks of, of uh, baggage uh, manually. Mm. Um, so they got onto the flight. Carlos going at some point on the flight comes out of his box probably fairly soon after they take off because of how much time you want to spend in a <laughs> yeah. musical instrument box. Uh, and then he changes planes in uh, Istanbul by now. Yeah. He just takes, you know, walks over to a, another plane, arrives in Lebanon, and he's a free man. Right. Uh, and because Lebanon doesn't have an extradition treaty with Japan, mm. essentially he's not at any risk of being, you know, sent back to Japan. Mm. And he ha now has his, his freedom. Wow. And he's a, a citizen of Lebanon, yes? That's right. He's a citizen of Lebanon. He also has a French and Brazilian passport. Mm -hmm. um, but as a citizen of Lebanon, Lebanon does not extradite its right. citizens right. ever, right. is our understanding, and doesn't have a treaty with Japan, so wouldn't, you know, wouldn't even do it with Japan. So, you know, he's pretty safe there. It seems that, you know, the Lebanese, you know, want him to kind of not make too much of a, a song and dance about his freedom. Mm. Um, but he has <laughs> a lot more freedom than he did in Japan. No doubt about that. So he has escaped uh, what he contends is unfair Japanese, the, the unfair Japanese justice system. He manages to make his way overseas into Lebanon. Uh, now he is, I guess, free or at least he has a platform to tell his story on his terms. So what does he do from there? Right. This is the interesting thing. I mean, you know, when he was in Japan, he clearly wanted to make a public case of how he'd been badly treated. Mm. Um, you know, he did do a couple of interviews while he was in detention, um, and he wanted to call a press conference when he was out on bail, um, but that was quickly cancelled, and we believe that's because his lawyers advised him that that might work against him. Right. He wanted to tell the public how badly he'd been treated, how this mm. was a conspiracy, right. how this was like a travesty of justice, um, and he didn't have the chance to do that in Japan. Right. So he arrives in Lebanon, and he's he has um, he can do whatever he wants. Right. So he calls a press conference. Um, and it's interesting. He in, he doesn't he he gets to select which media can go to this press conference, and he didn't allow most of the Japanese press to go to this <laughs> because he felt that the coverage in Japan had been unfair mm. and had been mainly based on you know what the prosecutors had leaked to the Japanese press, which in his view had a, amounted to a character assassination, right. building the idea in Japan that this is a terrible guy who's done terrible things. Mm. And therefore, you know, in the court of a public opinion, he was, you know, he should be seen as guilty. He was right. unhappy with that. Didn't mm. let most of the Japanese press, some of them did go to his mm. press conference. Press conference was this sort of rambling, um, you know, <laughs> over two hour uh, incredible performance where he, you know, he's just essentially venting. Yeah. Just kind of all that sort of pent up frustration and you know anger comes out he's waving his arms around he's showing you know slides on a screen that no one can read yeah he's kind of rambling about what they are um you know fonts too small people can't read it um <laughs> and essentially the press conference is you know very entertaining mm. um but doesn't really give a whole lot of additional information to support his case um, spectacle more than yeah it's it's really mm. him you know uh giving an impassioned plea to to 
you know, say to the press, believe me. Yeah, right. this is I you just need to believe me rather than saying, you know, it, it did go on for a long time. He did give some detail, but none of it was particularly new. Now he says that he is going to provide documentation that will back up his assertions of you know being framed, mm. um, back up his his claim that Nissan knew all along about what he was doing, you know, with uh the finances that he allegedly um you know was doing shady things with. Mm. So he, you know, he does say that he he can back up all his points. And what he wants is to be found to be cleared essentially, not just in the court of public opinion, but in right. a court and his name to be you know cleared, uh his reputation to be restored. Right. And for him to, you know, basically shake off all of the uh, what he sees as the damage that's happened to him, um, you know, during the you know uh, year and a few months that he was, um, you know, detained and, and charged in in Japan. Mm. So, you know, big question is, okay, well, how is he going to do that? You know, right. he if he wants to be found not guilty, he's obviously not willing to do that in a Japanese court. Right. And he claims that a Japanese court wouldn't be fair. So is he going to submit himself to trial somewhere else? Elsewhere, yeah. We don't know that. Mm. Um, and, you know, there is does seem to be an option for him to be tried in Lebanon. Um, you know, there are questions about whether the Lebanese um, criminal justice system would be fair and would be free of corruption um, right, is, right. is a claim that's often leveled there. And he mm. has seen a something of a national hero in Lebanon mm, as well. Mm. So, you know, he's, I think he's looking for uh, the right place um, where he can go through some kind of legal process which appears to vindicate him. Right. Uh, but that's a very hard thing to do. And mm. I don't think, you know, the Jap would the Japanese engage in a trial um, that happens in Lebanon? That's not clear that they would you know, want that to happen. They're, you know, what they have said, the prosecutors have said, is yeah. that he should return to J Japan and he should clear his name mm. in Japan because that's where the where alleged arrested. Yeah. You know, yeah. crimes were committed. Sure. So now we're now in this kind of standoff situation. Mm. The question is, what does he? what's his next move? Mm. So he has this opportunity to finally speak to the public. And uh, according to that analysis, he... he he spends his time sort of appealing on the strength of his emotions rather than the merits of the case itself, right? How has this spectacle then, uh, what has this done to sort of maybe clear his name or shed a new light on, on his case internationally? Yeah. We can get to domestic Japan later on. Right. Um, it's interesting. I mean, obviously his press conference got a lot of coverage um, you know, my own newspaper, the Wall mm. Street Journal, mm. um, our editorial page, which is entirely separate from the reporting team, wrote a an editorial with the headline uh, uh, "Gone Baby Gone," which um, was essentially, you know, saying this is over. He's been in right. the view of the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, he should be vindicated in the court of public opinion. So mm. in the in the view of our editorial writers, it was effective. Mm. Um, I think other media perhaps have that have that viewpoint. I've seen similar yeah, uh, yeah contentions. You know, yeah. the guy talked about how he was kept in a tiny cell, you know, 
it's not just the merits of the case that he disputes, but his treatment while he was in detention. Mm. Um, you know, the, the big picture is, you know, I was just uh, abused essentially in Japan. Right. And that's quite a, you know, quite, that's been perhaps the most compelling uh, argument for the Western press because they see mm. uh, his description of, you know, being kept in a tiny room, not having a lawyer present when he's being questioned right. day and night. Right. Um, he says that he was told repeatedly that he should confess. So, you know, he's alleging some kind of degree of coercion there. Um, you know, and this overall picture of a man, um, you know, ripped from his family, he's not allowed to talk to his wife. Mm. You know, it's quite a compelling case of someone being treated very badly. Sure. And I think that's resonated with with the perhaps the Western press, right? Right. Um, I'm sure it varies by country, and you know, um, it being I don't really know how the French media have covered this. You know, they tend mm. to be quite, um, you know, skeptical of rich people of like Carlos mm. Ghosn, You know, making yeah. claims about uh, how they've been abused. From but, what I've seen so far, I'm I'm sorry to interrupt. Sure. It seems like the uh, French have been a bit critical right. of his escape. Yes, right. and that he should. Have remained in Japan and and faced his trial there. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I think it, I think there's been a range of reactions. Mm. Um, you know, the perhaps the more the business press continue. We continue to look at. You know, what is he saying about why the case against him is unfounded? What are the what is his evidence of this? Right. You know, that's really still to be. You know, made completely clear about right, uh, what right. he says that, uh, um, you know, uh, why he was framed um, and, you know, what his argument is, you know, to prove what the, the charges against him are. Mm. Um, if you're just looking at, was this guy badly treated? Um, I think a lot of media have said perhaps yes. And, you mm. know, the Japanese gym, uh, criminal justice system has come under a lot of scrutiny as a result of this. Mm, let's talk about that a little bit more. Mm. What is unique about the Japanese criminal justice system? And why why is it that Westerners uh, would tend to sort of, you know, uh, see it as being unfair or, or overly austere? Right. I mean, the first thing to say is the Japanese position on this is Carlos Ghosn was treated the same way as anyone else inside mm. the, the, the criminal justice system in Japan. Right. He was not singled out for mm. any, you know, um, harsher treatment. He got the same treatment as anyone else. Right. Um, and the Japanese, you know, we both live in Japan and we know that mm. crime here is very low. Right. Uh, the argument, um, you know, made on the Japanese side is it gets results, right? The, right. the criminal justice system ensures that Japan stays a you know, a um, mostly crime-free country. Right. So there's that. That needs to be said. Mm. You know, now, when you get into the specifics of how he was treated, they they do differ a lot from kind of widely accepted practices in the West, such as when mm. he's being questioned, he doesn't have a lawyer present. Right. Now, again, the Japanese say, well, he has access to a lawyer, um, just not during the questioning. Mm. Um and the you know the justice ministry have said that you know they are open to looking at their own system and seeing whether changes need to be made, but this is a system that has been around for a long time and it's sure. unfair to criticise 
uh, one country's criminal justice system because it's not the same as yours. Well, and so, also just because, you know, um, a CEO who has the means to get his opinion heard, right, uh, just, just because he was arrested and treated within that doesn't mean that now at this moment in time we should be criticized. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are plenty of cases of people with, that don't have the means to go through the criminal justice system and the media just ignore their stories. Right, right. So, you know, I think it's a big shock for Japan to have this kind of, you know, spotlight on their system. And, you know, it's very interesting to see the way that they've reacted because we've had the justice minister giving press conferences, you know, when after Gone's press conference in Lebanon, uh, you know, after midnight here in Japan, she gave a reaction in a mm. press conference. Mm. You know, that's unheard of here. Right. They've they've released, you know, uh, the prosecutors have released statements in English refuting his claims. Prosecutors never release statements. <laughs> they never release them in English. Right, right. Uh, the Justice Ministry has released a Q&A on their website about why the justice system here is, is um, unfairly portrayed mm. in the West. Mm. So huge spotlight on Japan. Yeah. Go, you know, there's other things like Goen says, um, you know, he's not able to talk to his wife. Mm. Um, and the response to that on the Japanese side has, has been that, well, uh, or, or at least the prosecutors have alleged that there is a danger of her, you know, tampering with evidence. Right. Um, and he's not allowed to use the internet unless his, unless his lawyer is there. You know, it sounds like a fairly um, mm. harsh treatment. You know, in the tiny cell that he's in, you can only shower twice a week. Mm. You're not allowed to stand up in the sh in the cell um, <laughs> for any length of time. Yeah. You know, the lights are on at night, so it's difficult to sleep. Mm. You know, it just sounds like a pretty unpleasant situation. Right. Um, right. Is it any worse than, say, you know, China or North Korea? Almost <laughs> certainly not. Um, yeah. You know, so, but because it's Carlos going and because there's, you know, uh, he is making a very big, you know, push to let the media or to get the media to to talk about this. Um, you know, it's now suddenly in the spotlight, and the Japanese mm. side is reeling. Um, you know, trying to sort of fight their corner on this. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, it's fascinating. It's 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 an interesting case of sort of does the 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 man with the largest microphone. Right. Uh, have the final say just because his voice is the loudest. Right. Right. But at least for now, it seems like the strategy is to stay out ahead of them and keep Japan on the on the back foot. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, Japan is struggling with this because uh, you know the man himself has such a sort of dramatic personal story. Um, you know, he's on a second marriage, had like an amazing. Uh, gave his wife this amazing 50th birthday party in the Palace of Versailles in <laughs> France with like amazing costume, you know, period costumes and things. Yeah. He's just like a very flamboyant, interesting character. Right. And the story of Carlos Ghosn is what people are interested in. So we have a very, we have sort of unlimited appetite to write about Carlos Ghosn. Mm. When it comes to the Japanese criminal justice system, you know, it doesn't have, the, the same level of drama. I mean, it does mm. when there's people's testimonies, but when it's officials saying everything is fine, <laughs> it's all fair, um, you have to trust us. That's right. not, you know, that's not a, as a compelling a story 
as yeah. talking about Carlos going. So they they have a disadvantage, as you say. It's whoever yeah. has the largest microphone, mm. and I think he'll continue to use that microphone. I mean, Carlos going is not a guy that knows how to sort of just quietly go, you know, mm. go into the night. Right. Uh, he will he will want attention. Um, and he is still clearly very unhappy about what happened. So I don't think we've heard the last of him.